Snap Studios. Hot Michigan July. No air conditioning. 11 years old. Sitting in church. Bored out of my mind. I want to escape. I look over and see this kid. Blonde hair. Limp from the heat. Never seen him before. He sits there staring at his Bible, and I'm thinking, oh, here's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Then he glances to either side, surreptitious-like, and I see him turn the page of a Green Lantern comic hidden in the holy book, even as the preacher rages on. I'm so jealous. He catches me, looking at him, grins like, you don't believe this stuff either? And just like that, we're best pals. We spend days at each other's houses. I love going over to his place because his parents are German immigrants and use funny words. And his mother makes all of their food from scratch. Not boxes, not cans, scratch. Glenn, you want some more blueberry pancakes? I love her blueberry pancakes with the real maple syrup. At their kitchen table over the years, I don't know how many I devour, hundreds, thousands They live outside a small town near Lake Michigan, surrounded by woods. Ronnie and I tear around trails, top speed in a dune buggy he made out of an old Subaru, screaming our heads off. Sail boats out on the lake, try talking the girls from Saugatuck into hopping on board. We sign up as roommates, freshman year of college. Work together painting apartment buildings that summer. Live together sophomore year as well. Then I move abroad. But even from the other side of the globe, we keep in touch. I find an international telephone in Seoul, in Osaka, in Taipei to check in and ask about the gang. My lifeline. Back to the real. He always gives me everyone's update quick because he knows the call costs a fortune. I don't care. For a moment, it's good to feel part of his world. he moves and I move and he moves and we start becoming men I tell him please understand how good you are at this coding thing not everyone can do it dude he presses me back on my writing and I tell him I'm running to go to a place of quiet solitude to first see myself before letting the words flow finding power in stillness but I tell him about this beautiful woman I met at a bar. Naturally. Later, naturally, he comes to our wedding in California. And I hug him. Tight. Make a big show about looking around because I hoped he'd bring a girlfriend. But he says he's still flying solo. All in good time. I know. I know. Then, life sped up. We still spoke on the phone every few months to share good news. Bro, we just had a baby girl. She's beautiful just like her mama. Oh, hey, bro, you're not going to believe it, but this big head, rusty butt boy looks just like me. Come out. When wifey's not looking, we'll sit these kids in the back of a dune buggy. You can drive. We laugh. My oldest friend, now a big in-demand technical superstar. And one day, talking to an old acquaintance. 
She just mentioned at the end of the phone call. Isn't it great about Ronnie getting married? Those two make such a fantastic couple. Married? My hands are trembling. I'm going to have to call you back. My oldest friend in the world found a bride and never bothered to let me know. I took several deep breaths, waited a few moments, and then I called him. Heard my own voice flat. Hey, Ronnie. I heard you got married. Yeah. I should have told you, but, wow, she's from a church family. It doubled me over like a heavyweight jab to the gut. See, our church, the church we both grew up in, the church we laughed at together, preached against interracial marriage. But it'd been so long, with so much ridiculousness, craziness from our childhood, it never occurred to me that my family... My happy, brown, blonde, ridiculous, green-eyed, noisy, beautiful, Motown-singing, sauerkraut-eating, mixed-race union. The very thing of which I am most proud, for which I would lay down my life. Viewed through a certain lens, through certain eyes, could be seen as an embarrassment, an abomination. You know, I don't have a problem with it. I just have to be careful beginning of our relationship and all. I didn't even hear the rest. I simply said, never speak to me again. I stewed in that gloom for weeks before I did what I normally do. I sat down to write, but... Nothing came. Blank screen. Because I didn't want to go to that quiet space. I didn't want to lean into that stillness. I didn't want to face myself scared, terrified. Because if I did look honestly, what if my childhood, my young adulthood, my history, what if the central character was an imaginary friend? Finally, after days of staring at blank pages, I turned everything off. The phone, the TV, the Internet, put headphones on over my earphones, leaned into the silence and waited. The quiet told me, you are so lucky. Look at your wife your kids, your friends, you have found your tribe. So I mourned in the quiet. Just me, I mourned. Tears sticky running down my face, I mourned everything. Then I got back to work. Today on Snap Judgment, 
from Step Underground Studios, we proudly present Blood Oath. Stories of connection and connections lost. My name is Tim Washington. Promises, promises when you're listening. Listen to Snap Judgment. Now then, we're going to kick off today's episode in Belfast with a story about holding on. Snap producer Nancy Lopez has the story. Snap Judgment. I am Dr. Anthony McIntyre, a senior leading researcher with the John J. Burns Library, Boston College. The following interview pertains to the Belfast Project. It is conducted with interviewee C. The interview is interview 01. Do you have a problem with committing all this to secret tape for the purposes of Boston College to be used only after you have died? I don't have a problem with that. If I did have a problem with that, I wouldn't be sitting here talking into your microphone. Very good. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff that I'm saying here, uh, I'm saying it in trust. I mean, I have never, ever, ever admitted to be a member of the IRA. Never. Uh, I've just done it here. Uh, and I think that's just a, an indication of how, how much trust I placed in you. This recording took place in 2001 in an apartment in West Belfast. It's morning. A Sony tape recorder is sitting on the edge of a table, and the two men you hear are alone. The first voice belongs to Anthony McIntyre. Do you regret that, that you have joined? You, you don't seem to regret having fought. Is that a fair enough comment to make? It's a fair enough comment. Anthony used to be a gunman for the Irish Republican Army. He gathered intelligence, he took over buildings, he kidnapped, and he even killed. He ended up in prison for almost 18 years. But now here he was, almost a decade later, an academic interviewing a former comrade, a man willing to tell Anthony all of his secrets about his time as a brigade commander for the IRA. There's no, no one else in this whole world I would talk the way I'm talking here now. Well, my willingness to carry out the work is also an indication of the trust that I have in the people at Boston College. Uh, they will not let me down and I will not let you down. I think that goes without saying. Anthony was documenting the testimonies of former IRA members for Boston College to be part of an oral history archive. After this initial sit-down with interviewee C, Anthony placed a tape recorder in his bag and headed straight home. I would cling to this bag. I was always worried about even a dog attacking me or jumping and stealing my bag. You know, all the mad things that come into your head about the need to protect yourself. Once home, Anthony transcribed the interview, sent the transcript through encrypted email to the Belfast Project, making sure to omit the participant's name, and then mailed off the tape to Boston College. And make sure that I had nothing uh, in my home uh, or anything on me that, that could ever fall into the wrong hands. The Belfast Project was being carried out under total secrecy. These testimonies and the participants' identities were to remain confidential until after they died. Anthony had told Boston College that's the only way he'd go through with it. 
Although the IRA had officially dropped its weapons and a peace process was well underway in Northern Ireland, the reality on the ground was different. Any scrutiny or investigation of the provisional IRA's activities in any way was fraught with uh, danger. After Anthony wrote an article criticizing the IRA for gunning down a man in broad daylight, two men from the IRA showed up at his front door. The IRS Adjutant General visited my home and sought to intimidate both myself and my wife, who was heavily pregnant, placed his head against mine, and we had a head-to-head confrontation in the middle of the kitchen, and he said, so you're going to investigate the IRA, because I had commented on an IRA killing. To be clear, the IRA had no idea about the Belfast Project, and Anthony wanted to keep it that way. He interviewed people in private, in their homes, in one-hour sessions over the course of several weeks and months. It could be hard to get people to open up. And then I discovered in some cases that it could become harder to get them to close down. And I sat with grown men who had been through the rigors of the hate black protests, who had watched their colleagues die, who had been on hunger strikes themselves, and I sat with them and they cried. Towards the end of each interview... I always ask people to reflect on the morality of killing. Uh, what purpose would killing serve? Over and over again, the people he interviewed alluded to one name, Jean McConville. Jean McConville was one of the, the most notorious war crimes that happened and that the IRA were responsible for. Back in the 1970s, Jean McConville was an Irish mother of 10. She'd been killed and her body disappeared by the IRA, but no one had been named. It was such a terrible killing that people have to be very, very cautious when they're discussing it. And one day, Anthony was interviewing an old friend, a former IRA volunteer named Dolores Price. She was now the godmother to Anthony's son. Dolores Price told me that she wanted to talk about uh, the Jean McConville killing. And I had said to her, as a researcher, I would love I would love to get this story, but I have to warn you as a friend. Are you sure you want to go through with this? You'll pass off uh, into eternity and your children may have to bear the mark again for the story that you're about to reveal. And she went away and she came back to me and then she decided she would not discuss Jean McConville. But Jean McConville's name kept resurfacing. Like when Anthony went back to talk to interviewee C, the former IRA brigade commander. There's... A woman went missing. This woman was taken away and executed Jean, by the IRA. Jean McConville. Jean McConville. She was an informer. She had a transmitter in her house. The British supplied the transmitter into her flat. The British were surveilling the movements of the IRA all along the Falls Road in West Belfast, an IRA stronghold. She was getting paid by the British to, to pass on information. We retrieved the transmitter, arrested her, took her away, interrogated her, and she told what she was doing. We, we actually knew what she was doing because we had the transmitter. And because she was a woman, we let her go. We let her go with a warning. A few weeks later, another transmitter was, was put into her house, and she was still cooperating with the British. The special squad was, was brought on the operation then, and she was arrested again and taken away 
the rest of the IRA. By the IRA. The second thing. Yeah. I knew she was being executed. I knew that. Uh, I didn't know she was going to be buried right, or, or, or disappeared, as they call them now. What's the sense of killing her and burying her if no one knows what she was killed for? Right? It's pure revenge. If you kill someone and bury them, uh, what's the point? What's the point of it? There's only one man that give the order for that woman to be executed. Right, this now the head of Sinn Féin. Now there's no doubt who this man is signaling. The head of Sinn Féin, the IRA's political party, is a man by the name of Jerry Adams, a man who's denied ever even being a member of the Irish Republican Army. And he went to this family's house and promised an investigation into the woman's disappearance. That man is the man that gave order for that woman to be executed. Now, tell me the morality in that. And if I remember, I'd said to him, but uh, you agreed with it? And you said yes. She, she deserved to be executed, I believe, because she was an informer. And she, she put other people's lives at risk. Even with all her kids, the way the family was left, in hindsight, do you still feel strongly about <clears throat> executing her? Not really, no. Not now. Not now. No. Looking back on it now, what, what happened to her, to the woman, was, was wrong. This set of interviews remained secret. That was part of the Belfast Project's commitment to confidentiality. Until the death of interviewee C, or as we would come to learn, Brendan Hughes. Brendan Hughes was a senior member of the IRA. He was a very courageous figure. He had led the 1980 hunger strike. He had headed up the IRA security department uh, for, for the North, the Northern Command. Or, and I, I had met him when I was 16 in prison, and I was a close friend of his. We developed a close friendship. And Brendan Hughes was one of the few people involved in the Belfast Project who'd been anxious to get his story out. The reason why I do these type of interviews that I'm doing now is that there is a personal record. I don't want to be uh, held up and statues built or portraits done of me as the great revolutionary soldier from the Falls Road. I prefer to have some sort of legacy left behind where people can say he made a difference for us. On that, can I thank you for your participation? It's been a most valuable insight. Uh, I have found it very interesting. Boston College will find it very enlightening. Thank you very much. I just hope that it's, it's of some value to, to the future students who's going to be studying this. And I think it's important to remember that there is no lies been told here. This is truth. Hard as it may seem, but it is true and important. So when Brenton died, I felt that there was a commitment that we had the honour. In 2010, two years after his death, a book called Voices from the Grave was published. It featured large excerpts of Brandon's unapologetic testimony to the Belfast Project. It immediately made national headlines. Two of the most damning accusations made by Brandon Hughes about Jerry Adams, firstly, would be the one regarding the disappearance of Jean McConville. And of course, for Sinn Féin, this isn't just a story about their leader as they see it being humiliated. This matters also for them because all of this sits very uncomfortably with the party's increasingly grand political ambitions. 
Gene McConville's son spent Thursday telling journalists that he was pleased history had not forgotten Jerry Adams. I arrived home from work one evening and my wife was very concerned and said to me, Ed Maloney needs to talk to you urgently. Ed Maloney is a reporter and he managed the Belfast Project. I, I phoned him up and he told me that a, a subpoena had been issued. He said that British authorities, through the U.S. Department of Justice, were demanding that Boston College hand over the interviews of Dolores Price and Brendan Hughes. They wanted to use them to investigate the murder of Jean McConville. So, uh, I mean, I was sort of uh, perplexed, shocked. And I said, how can a subpoena be issued? This is outside. This can't happen. How could it have been issued? Anthony was certain they had all the safeguards in place, that Boston College will protect the living people in the Belfast Project, the way journalists protect their sources, and not hand over the confidential tapes. Well, I began to tell as many people as possible uh, right away that they put in requests for Brantons, and they put in requests for Dullers. It wasn't a nice exercise. I mean, it was unpleasant to have to tell somebody this. You know, some people just had the attitude, ah, let them go to hell, couldn't care about them. All, all our people had genuine fears. and uh, I mean, Of what? Would their taste be handed over? Would they be hauled out of their family life? Would they be hauled off to prison? Would their whole world be turned upside down? Boston College went to court to fight the subpoena. But as the battle went on, Anthony got desperate, and he made a proposition to Boston College that they give him all the interview tapes. It wouldn't matter what sentences they threw, what jail threats. It wasn't going to matter. I, they weren't, I, I was prepared to defy the court. I was prepared to go to prison. I was not compromising anything to do with the project. And Boston College told me to stop panicking. Boston College was slapped with the second subpoena. British authorities were now demanding all the tapes from the Belfast Project that mentioned Jean McConville. Ultimately, Boston College gave in and handed over the tapes of seven interviewees. The repercussions went straight to the top. There's also breaking news tonight from Northern Ireland. Politician Jerry Adams has been arrested in connection with a 1972 murder committed by the Irish Republican Army. The arrest of Jerry Adams seems to be based on a series of recorded interviews given by former IRA members to researchers from Boston College collecting an oral history of the Northern Irish conflict. Jerry Adams was not charged with the murder. After four days, he was released. But the confidential trust of the Belfast Project was now broken. Up and down the Falls Road, they were accusing us of being farmers. They were calling us rats, Boston College touts. I, I, I felt terrible in that I was unable to protect my sources and I felt guilty uh, that I had exposed people to this risk uh, and that people who had placed their faith in me were nibbing that down because uh, we had got it wrong. We had got it wrong. It was worse than being imprisoned. It was worse than anything else that ever happened to me. I mean, even in prison when we were naked and getting beaten and hosed down, we could always do something. They could come around and beat us, and they might beat us for months, and then the IRA would shoot one of them, and we would say, well, you know what you, know what you got that for, don't you? 
Do you want to beat us again this week? And Anthony, he hasn't been immune to any of it. Not only was he an interviewer for the Belfast Project, he was an interviewee. His testimony of his time as an IRA gunman is sitting in that archive. And British authorities have now requested that Boston College hand over the tapes of Anthony McIntyre. Just like he believed in the IRA struggle, but ultimately had to walk away from the organization, Anthony still believes in the Belfast Project. This is the sort of history that has to be gathered if people are to be better informed, if we have a better understanding of our past. It's a valuable mechanism in truth recovery. But you may not no longer blame me for not wanting to be known as Dr. Anthony McIntyre. I refuse. I relinquish it. I'm ashamed to be a doctor. It's a badge of shame. I see a doctor, a doctorate is something that should be worn like a bell around your neck to warn the unsuspecting. Beware academic approaching. Big love to Anthony McIntyre for sharing his story. We also want to give thanks to Ed Maloney for sharing archival tape of the Brendan Hughes interviews from the documentary Voices from the Grave. We'll have a link to that and much more on our website, snapjudgment.org. Sound design was by Renzo Gorio, and that story was produced by Nancy Lopez. When Snap Judgment returns, a friendship like no other. When the Blood Oath episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Blood Oath episode. Today, we're exploring commitment, what it means, and where it takes us. And our next story takes us right to the edge. Snap Judgment. My best friend is a woman I've never met. I mean, like, you have your high school best friend, you have your college best friend. I had a maid of honor at my wedding. But Kate is my functional best friend. She's the person I call when stuff goes wrong. She's the person I call if I need to vent or I need to cry or I just need somebody to listen to what's going on in my life. Four years ago, we met in an online writing group. We both hated all the same stuff. At first, we talked by private message and email, and then one night I needed feedback on a piece, and she let me call her at one o'clock in the morning and read the story to her. And ever since, we've talked every day. Kate always picks up. She's always home. And this is because one of the first things she ever told me, she said she was circus freak fat. She's housebound. She lives in a house in Louisiana that she inherited from her parents. Both her parents were hoarders. So she lives surrounded by giant piles of stuff. And about six years ago, two years before we met, her health deteriorated and it got hard to walk. So she left her job at the power company, cashed out her retirement, and basically went home to die. 
she couldn't even take out her own garbage. Like every so often she would order pizza. She could only eat food that delivered. And when the pizza guy came, he would take her trash can to the curb. And then the next time she ordered something off Amazon, the UPS delivery guy would bring the garbage can back up from the curb. Kate doesn't get out much, but I get out a lot. And Kate and I have this thing where everywhere I go, I call her from someplace interesting and I turn in a circle and I tell her everything I see. So I go to Alaska, to South Africa, to Nepal, and I was at Manakamana, this uh, temple on a mountaintop in Nepal, and I call her up and turn a quarter turn, and I'm like, in front of me, there's, you know, all these offering tables covered with like red and gold fabric, and I turn a quarter turn, and there's this pen full of black goats, and I hold up the phone so she can hear the temple bells. She tells me, I'm her window on the world. As I'm learning what her daily life is like, you know, as I'm learning stuff like she really missed fruit because nobody delivers fruit, you know, it's the one thing Amazon doesn't sell, you know, as I'm learning that, you know, there's six buckets of fishing bobbles in the carport, but she can't throw them away because she remembers tying fishing bobbles with her dad when she was a little kid. I start thinking, well, maybe I can help with this, you know, I mean, I'm reasonably able-bodied and I travel all over the world for my job and I go through the American South a lot and I say, I have a week between Florida and Tennessee. Could I come take out some boxes for you? And she says, you're funny. I call her from Edmonton. She spends like a week listening to me whine and then helps me break up. I call her from Michigan and she helps me get divorced. I send her the manuscript of my novel and she reads all of it three times, two and a half times more than my mom. One year in August, she said she was really hot. Her air conditioner had broken. And I said, I could come help with that. I probably wouldn't even have to come in the house. And she, you know, she really kind of lost it. She's like, stop pushing. It will end our friendship if you come. She was afraid that if I, if I saw her body, if I saw her house... If I saw her, that I wouldn't like her anymore, that I wouldn't be her friend anymore. And I think that as well as all the boxes, she just had this giant hoard of shame. We would have these conversations where she would say something like, I think I'll go to the door today. And it it took like an hour because she would have to, to crawl there. And... After, you know, a a few rounds of, of, I'd like to come and help you, you know, no, don't come, don't come, I finally was like, you know, I I have to do this. I have to go and, and help my friend. And... I ended up in this little town in in Arkansas that was less than an hour away from where Kate lived in Louisiana. And I thought, I am going to do this right. And, you know, she'd had some trouble with deliveries going to the back door because the back door was inaccessible and she would like wait all day at the front door and then discover that they had left the delivery at the back door. And so I like 
print out this handy little sign that says take all deliveries to front and I get my sign laminated and I buy some oranges and some apples and I buy bananas that are still green so that they will last and I google map her house and I pick up the phone to be like you know ready or not here I come she picks up she always picks up and she says hey is is everything okay And I realize in that moment that the price of having Kate on the other end of the line is letting her stay at the other end of the line. That as long as we never meet, she can be the person who helps me instead of a person who needs help. I put the fruit in the fridge, I put the sign in the garbage, and I say, no reason, just called to say hi. Thank you, Allison Williams, for sharing a bit of your world. That piece was produced by Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame for CBC's Love Me. You can hear more Love Me at cbc.ca slash loveme or subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now then, on today's Blood Oath episode, we're exploring promises kept Promises Broken. Our next piece comes from StoryCorps, the project that collects stories from everyday Americans and archives them at the Library of Congress. This archive they've built, it's the largest single collection of human voices ever gathered. And just one of those voices belongs to Reverend James Seawood. He grew up in Arkansas, in a segregated town called Sheridan during the 1950s. As a child, I would climb up on the lumber stack and look over at the white school. Huge school with a band, football team, everything that you could imagine. And on our side, here we were uh, with our two-room school, outdoor toilets, and two teachers. Sheridan was a company town. There's a local lumber mill that owned the housing many of its employees lived in. And many of those employees were African-American. So when the school board started talking about integrating the schools, the town avoided this fate by relocating African-Americans out of Sheridan. And gradually, as the uh, black population in town began to go down, that left my mother there at the school as the principal, the janitor, whatever was needed, she had to do everything. And as long as there was one black child left in town, they had to keep the school open. So 10, 9, 8, mother was there till the last child, the last family was forced out of town. So I remember one day, mother and I got in uh, the old station wagon because mother had heard that the school was going to be torn down. We went inside the school. We got whatever records we could find. We put them in the back of the station wagon. Then... A big 
bulldozer came and dug a deep hole. And after digging this deep hole, just pushed our beloved school in the hole and covered it up. And it was as though it was never there. Years later, when I was in graduate school and people would talk about urban renewal, I had a particular perspective. To me, urban renewal meant they'll dig a deep hole and push your school, cover it up, and it'll be like the school never existed or you never existed. I'll never forget those days. Even today, this town of Sheridan, Arkansas, is an all-white town. And if you ever have an opportunity to go through that town, drive very slowly. That's Reverend James Seawood from a StoryCorps interview recorded in New York City. StoryCorps is premiering an animated film based on this story. It's called Schools Out. See it right now on the StoryCorps website, storycorps.org. You can catch more audio treasure from StoryCorps each week on the StoryCorps podcast. When Stamp Judgment continues, what is the extent of true love? Find out in just a moment when the Snap Judgment Blood Oath episode returns. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Blood Oath episode. My name is Ben Washington, and you may know that the most important promise is the one you make to yourself. Our next storyteller promised to answer the question, how far would you go? One. The time traveler leaves her craft in a copse of trees near the center of the park. She walks quickly, as quickly as she can these days, with her aging knees and hips. She takes the subway downtown till she reaches the poorest part of the city. She finds the artist, at home, amidst the squalor, paint scattered, no hot water, barely room for a dirty mattress. He is so young, the artist, a smooth face in the dark of his walk-up. She supposes this will be easy, from the hungry tilt of his face to his stooped posture from painting under the attic roof. Right off, she can tell he does not recognize her. Her face is lined now, her hair faded, from gold to white. She tells him that she is a very famous curator, a lie. She says she has heard rumors about him, but now, here, surrounded by his work, she can see he has no talent, that his paintings are no good. This, too, is a lie. Still, she continues, give up painting, she tells him, it will ruin you and those that love you. Pick a job that pays, one with security. Don't you want stability, happiness? The artist looks at her, aghast but defiant. He knows his way around this kind of truth. When the time traveler returns to her own time, she heads straight to the third gallery on the third floor of the museum. The painting still hangs, 
a moon-filled abstract, curves like rolling blue hills lit from within and without. The room is crowded with people who have only seen it on hollow screens. They are breathless in its physical presence. The dates under the artist's name mark his long-ago birth and death. The painting is now titled, In Spite Of. Two. The time traveler counts to three and throws the dummy onto the highway as a bottle green Ford comes barreling over the bridge. After the smash-up, she calls the young artist Collect from a Modesto diner. Your brother's been in a terrible accident, she says. Long recovery ahead. He's asking for you. Come home. Come home for good, she says. When she gets back to her present time, the painting still hangs in the gallery, unchanged. She isn't exactly surprised. The artist never had time for family. Three. The time traveler sits at dinner with the artist's muse and the man she has hired to seduce the artist's muse. I was pretty then, the time traveler thinks. Her younger self has green eyes and gold hair. She is tall and strong, with large breasts and round hips, and the man is happy to do his job. The time traveler sits at the bar, watching them laugh and flirt, and buys bottle after bottle of wine for the table. When the man puts his hand on the muse's thigh, her face softens into a sweet smile. The time traveler stands for a long time under the muse's open window, listening to her low moans float onto the warm summer air. She returns to her own time, and the painting still hangs in the gallery. Now it is titled... Forgiveness. Four. The time traveler steals the artist and the muse's rent. She knows they keep it in the freezer, stashed in a coffee can. Their landlord, she recalls, was a son of a bitch. Now, when she returns to the museum, the painting is smaller, much smaller. But it is still the single occupant of the room, and it still sucks the air from the room, and it still lights the room from within and without. Christ, says the time traveler, and the tourists standing next to her shift uneasily in Midwestern disapproval. Five. The time traveler posts an acceptance letter from a California dental college, complete with a $900 bonus if the artist enrolls in the next two weeks. Back in the museum, the painting is bigger again, and the bio on the wall mentions, as a humorous bit of trivia, that the artist briefly considered dental school. Can you imagine, a guide says to his tour, the artist as a dentist? Six. The time traveler sets explosive charges under the artist's house and blows them when no one is home. Upon return to the museum, the painting is still there. But now the guide lectures on how the painter eventually lost his mind after the incident. The artist, he says, created a series of paintings using his own waste, which his wife, his muse, 
unfortunately destroyed. The tourists make faces. Seven. The time traveler sets fire to the unfinished painting. The painting is still there. Eight. The time traveler pours acid on the unfinished painting. The painting is still there. Nine. The time traveler paints over the unfinished painting. The painting is still there. Ten. The time traveler steals the unfinished painting and buries it in the past of the past. The painting is still there. Eleven. The time traveler curses, cuts, spits on, slashes, saws in half, kicks, pours water over, blowtorches, burns to bits, eats the ashes, smashes the easel, throws out the paints, and washes her hands of the unfinished painting. In triumph, she returns to the museum. The painting is still there. It hangs, suspended. Like an artfully falling ocean, says a pretentious young man in a straw boater and suspenders. The time traveler thinks of artfully falling anvils instead. Twelve. The time traveler steals the unfinished painting and takes it back to the future, where it disappears like smoke upon arrival. And the painting is still there, is still there, is still there. is still hanging in the gallery, and now it is titled Perseverance. The time traveler feels the unfairness of this keenly. She has persevered, and yet she has not succeeded. She has not made him see that the painting will be his undoing, that his end will be a sad one, there in that bedroom with his failures and his disappointments and his useless, incomprehensible war with the painting. All that genius given, all that misery marked for the both of them. Thirteen. The time traveler finds the muse at her lunch. She watches her eat her sandwich with gusto, tomato and cheese on thick slabs of crusty bread. She watches the muse gulp down wine, watches her strong white teeth and her smooth white throat. The time traveler sighs. She was more in love with life than him. She'd never have believed how black and long the days could stretch over her, mean and empty like shadows in the winter. She takes out the pill, drops it into the muse's wine glass. She leaves before her green eyes can close. She still needs them to see, just for a moment until the timeline catches up. The time traveler materializes in the gallery, where the painting no longer hangs. Now there is another painting, Lilies on a Pond and Google finds only a retired dentist in Modesto, California. The time traveler smiles then, a soft, sweet smile, and no, her limbs don't start to fade away, nor does that smile hang on the air, nor does she slowly dissolve like pixels on a screen over a wall. She simply smiles, and then... isn't. That's called a journey, Snappers. That's a journey. Adapt it. 
from the Amber Sparks original story. And you can find out all things Amber Sparks on our website, snapjudgment.org. It was directed by Mark Ristich, scored and soundscaped by Pat Masidi Miller, and produced by Liza Smith. Our narrator was San Francisco's own Tao Win of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Because that's how we roll here at the Snappage. That's how we do all in. All in, baby. All in. You've reached the end of the episode, but thankfully, not the end of the Snap Story universe, because we've got more stories than you can shake a stick at. Seriously, shake a stick at something and know that we've got even more stories than that. Available for you right now on the Snap Storytelling Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. However you get your podcast, get your podcast. Snap is produced by the team that says what they mean and means what they say. Please show some love for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Beat down the beat down, Pat McCeevy Miller, and assessment. Nancy Lopez, Joe Rosenberg, Davey Kim, Eliza Smith, Winslow Gorio, Leon Morimoto, Liz Mack, Idiza Egan, and she smokes them if you got them, Jasmine Aguilera. Maybe you've heard that this is not the news. No way it's just the news. But more importantly, this is not the droid we're looking for. But this is PRD.